Knicks fans, welcome back to Amazing Avenue Audio, the show. My name is Brian. Chris is uh, not feeling so well this week. And because we missed last week when I had to travel unexpectedly, we did not want to miss another show. So we called in. Uh, I don't want to call her a pinch hitter because that implies that she's not good enough to start. I guess we traded for a player from another podcast. Uh, we Promoted. Trade... Yeah, we promote. Okay, no, no, you are you are every bit the big leagues that we are. So <laughs> do not do not debase yourself and say you are a mere minor leaguer in this in this team situation. We have Allison McCaig coming over from a pod of their own. If for some reason you listen to this and not a pod of their own, and I don't even know how that's possible because we're on the same podcast feed, but if you are that person, stop being that person. Their show is incredible. It is uh, on Thursdays. I'm home with my son, and as my son naps every week, I listen to a pod of their own. That's my that's my weekly routine with them. So, Allison, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Brian? I am hanging in there. This beer is making things a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we are uh, recording right now, the Mets have lost two of three from San Diego. The uh, the team is looking uh not all that good right now. There seems to be these little flourishes where the pitching will look really solid. And then no one will hit for a while. And then the opposite will happen. But they haven't been able to put together a a real streak since the first week of the season. They haven't really been able to put together like two, three games in a row that feel like, even if they win or lose, things are on the right path. Things just seem very topsy-turvy in Metsville right now. And the Mets are currently sitting in third place in the National League East. And I know it's May 8th. We're not scoreboard watching we're not really caring about what other teams are doing at the moment but I think it's important to sort of note this the Phillies are in first place they are um, the only team in the division with a winning record as of this recording the Braves are sitting at 500 Uh, the Mets are comfortably in third place they are um, three and a half games ahead of the Nationals and uh, five and a half games ahead of I'm sorry six games ahead of the Marlins at the time of recording so just generally speaking, Allison, how are you feeling about the Mets in the division right now? Does this still seem like a division that's winnable or at least, you know, a division with wild card implications for it? Or do you think that the Mets are, and again, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom here, but do you think that the Mets are starting to put themselves in a position where if they keep playing this way, the playoffs are going to be out of the conversation in the next, you know, six weeks or so? Well, certainly if they keep playing this way the entire month of May, I think that they're pretty screwed when it comes to the division. Um, Just because, you know, it's frustrating because I don't actually think that there's a powerhouse in the division. Um, I think I think that right now the Phillies have made abundantly clear, at least early on, that they are the best team in the division right now. But it's not by a wide margin. They haven't convinced me that they're unbeatable or that it's an insurmountable climb to first place by any means. And it's not right now. Like the margin is not large. Um, But, you know, at the same time, they look very much like a 500 team to me. And that's not going to be good enough to win any division, let alone this one, even if everyone is relatively more mediocre than I expected. I think that like literally every team in the NL East looks worse than I expected by a slight bit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you're, you're probably not I don't know. About that. Um, so I kind of was hoping that 
this would be, you know, a dogfight into at least the summer. Um, and I remain hopeful that that can be the case. Um, but that hope is like slowly dwindling is, I guess, how I would put it right now. Yeah. And like I said, I, I don't want to be Mr. Doom and Gloom here. The Mets are three games below 500. This is not time to panic. If they were three games below 500, but only I just closed that tab. Let me reopen it. But only four and a half back in August, we wouldn't be talking about this as an insurmountable situation. You know, sure. uh, it, they are still very much within the realm of possibility to go on a hot streak and catch the Phillies. That's that is absolutely within the realm, within the realm of possibility. What I have been really frustrated by is, well, <laughs> to put it lightly, everything. It just seems like every time I'm I'm tuning in to the game or listening to the radio or something, something happens where I'm just like, God damn it. Why yeah. is this happening right now? Why is this the thing that's happening? Why why is Mickey Calloway doing this? Why is insert frustrating situation happening? And I know that that, that sounds like a typical like just long suffering Mets fan, but I don't I can't point to one thing this year, aside from batting Pete Alonso higher in the lineup than I thought they would, where I can look and say, you know what? Good for the Mets. They did blank situation correct. It's just been a comedy of errors this season, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like at the beginning of the season, like Brody Van Wagen had said, we're going to roster the best 25. And you did feel good because they kind of did fulfill that promise by keeping Pete Alonso on the roster from the beginning and not manipulating his service time and rostering Dominic Smith as well. And, you know, putting both of them on the roster. And I feel like that was, you know, a good sign that they were, you know, serious about that. But then they kind of undid all of that goodwill that they, like, <laughs> stored up by, like, bungling that and sending Smith back down with for a Denny Echevarria, like a veteran player. Very Mets thing to do. And then, you know, also bungling a whole Travis Darno situation, the whole catching situation. I feel like they just like, you know, they, they were like, oh, yeah, we're starting the best 25. And I was like, OK, they actually followed through on that. Good for them. They didn't manipulate their young prospect service time. Cool. All right. Credit for that. Kudos. And then they just like started metsing the thing like immediately <laughs> and just like have metsed ever since. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. And, you know, we, we do have to give a little bit of uh, credit where credit is due here. Oh, you know, it, it's been tough to manage this pitching depth because the pitching was so bad in different times. Specifically, the bullpen has been so bad at different times. And so there is a lot of work that has to be done to make sure that there are, you know, pitchers who can throw every night. And that does limit your roster construction in different places. You know, if you had a solid five or six guys in your bullpen who weren't being overworked Terry Collins style, you could, you could have a little bit more um, leeway with the bench or with, you know, just maybe carrying a third catcher, all the things that we had, you know, talked about earlier in the season or even in the off season of things the Mets should do. But the bench has been, you know, so in flux because the bullpen has been so in flux. So I have to, I have to somewhat give the Mets the benefit of the doubt for that. Where I will not give them the benefit of the doubt is the Danny Hechevarria and Travis Darno situations. Now, 
I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. Do you think that it was a mistake for them to tender Darnell a contract? Do you think they made the right move, but it just didn't work out? Do you think that they should have kept Kevin Plawecki? Like, you know, if you were Van Wagenen's catching advisor, what do you think the right move would have been at the start of the season? Even even using a little bit of your, you know, your foreknowledge of what actually happened. What was what was the right move? Did they did I guess what I'm asking is how badly did they bungle this? To me it's pretty bad. I mean, I if it were me, I wouldn't have tendered Darno in the first place. Um because <laughs> I, I mentioned this on a pot of their own and I think I mentioned this when I was guesting on for all you kids out there with um Jeff and Jarrett. Um the the amount of money that Travis Darno is is still being paid by the Mets is approximately one Gio Gonzalez, um, <laughs> so that's something to think about. Um, I personally would not have tendered Darno, and I'm not even saying this necessarily with hindsight. I am saying that I said this at the time, and I believed it because a I just think that it was time to move on from a guy that they you know constantly were trying to you know give shots to and it just never worked out in the end he gave us half a season of really good baseball and ever since then he's been you know kind of either hurt or underwhelming or you know just kind of mediocre um and I just felt it was time to move on a and b I think that they you know were too optimistic about his Tommy John recovery because Matt Weeders and other catchers who have gone through this. Now we don't have a very large sample size for catchers as compared to pitchers, obviously. Um, but the small sample size that we do have indicates that it takes even longer for catchers to recover sometimes than even pitchers take to recover more like 18 months to two years, as opposed to with Travis Darno is only about a year that he had out of his Tommy John surgery. And the Mets were expecting him to come back and, you know, be in the lineup every day or not every day, but, you know, be, a player on the roster every day. And I just think that that was an unrealistic expectation. Now that said, I understand where the Mets are coming from. He was, he still has, you know, that upside, that prospect pedigree. He was the crown jewel in the Dickey trade, not Noah Syndergaard. It was actually Travis Darno. So I understand that the Mets have this, you know, vested interest in him. So I can give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to tendering him a contract, even though it's not what I personally would have done. That said, I think that the Pulecki trade is inexcusable. That's the part of this whole situation that drives me nuts and makes me really mad and makes me think they completely screwed that up um, because they knew this about his, they knew that he had was recovering from Tommy John surgery. They knew that their primary catcher that they acquired in Wilson Ramos was also kind of had a pretty robust injury history. So they knew that these were risk factors going in and they chose to comp- they chose to get rid of their contingency plan and they traded him for like basically garbage. They they traded him <laughs> for what they thought was solid pitching depth, but that pitching depth is injured now. Um so it's just and he was way cheaper and there's just no excuse for not holding on to both Darno and Plawecki into spring training. There was a date at which they could have released Darno and not been responsible for his salary. And that was like well into spring training. I forget what the cutoff date is, but basically if they had like cut him loose before that point, they would have recouped like at least 75% of his salary or something like that. So they could have held on to both catchers said, 
you know, how is Darno's recovery going? Is it going, is it on track? Is it, what were we expected to be? If it is, then maybe, yeah, you can still trade Pulecki then and probably get approximately the same crappy return that you got. Um, or, you know, if you think, oh, look, it's not going how we expect, which is what ended up happening, because if you recall, Travis Darno started the season on the injured list. Uh So they knew, (laughs) they knew it wasn't going on track. And so if they had known that they could have cut him loose in spring training, we know that he latched onto another team relatively quickly. So he probably would have latched onto another team relatively quickly and they could have just had Pilecki as their backup catcher. That's the part that's inexcusable to me is not planning for that. Um, I wouldn't have tendered him the contract, but that's at least excusable, I think, and just a difference of opinion about the potential of Travis Darno. But the inexcusable part for me is trading Pulecki. And then, of course, there's the Mesoraco situation. Well, I was going to say, to me, the Mesoraco situation is even less excusable than the other yeah. ones. Um, yeah. From an atrocious behavior perspective, it's like even less excusable. So yeah. I, I do want to say, and and I am... I am not the guy to side with management over labor ever. That that that's that's just not who I am. But I will say that Van Wagenen gave an answer for that that I felt was at least a well reasoned answer, even if I disagree with just about all of it. He basically said it's important for us that people honor their contracts because if we get into the situation where anybody who wants a release is granted it that sets a really bad precedent for when a situation is not as clear cut as this one was. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's I, a I, shitty I, answer, but at least, it's, but at least it's, there's like, so there's some internal logic to it. Whereas I feel like, and, and I am the world's biggest Sandy Alderson apologist, but I feel like the Alderson regime wouldn't have even given that kind of an answer. No, they just would have been like, we're doing this because we're doing it. Like, yeah, they wouldn't have exactly. like, said anything about it. Exactly. Sure. I mean, Brody certainly, if anything else, he has a way of, he, he's articulate, and he at least explains himself well to the media. <laughs> yes. You know? Whether you agree with his assessment or not is a very different story, but that's okay. Yeah. Um. But no, the Mezzarocco thing, and I have, so forgive me if I miss something here. But Mezzarocco is still Mets property at the at this very moment, right? He's on the restricted list at this moment, so yes. But he's, like, retired, essentially. <laughs> he said he was going to retire. Now, I don't know Devin Mezzarocco from Adam. I don't. But don't you think if the Mets came calling with a major league deal now, he'd accept that? I don't know. I It seems like it's not going to be a thing <laughs> on either side. It seems like, because, like, I remember... In the immediate aftermath of the Travis Darno DFA, like some of the Mets beat reporters were like, for those of you, you know, <laughs> holding out for Devin Mezzarocco, just like don't get your hopes up, basically, was the general like thing. Um, it seems like it's almost like a matter of pride on both sides now. Like they don't want to come crawling back to him. He doesn't want to accept it. Like, I don't know. It seems like there's it, the bridge has just been burned. And so we're just past the point where either side will like reconcile. I have no idea. It just seems like such a shame to me. It is a shame. I mean, well, first of all, Mezzarocco would have been as good or better than any catcher, not named Ramos who the Mets have had on their roster this year. Yeah. And I mean, that's it. Yeah. Uh, I like, I don't know. I think that, yeah, I think it's just a matter of pride on both sides at this point. Like, I don't think he, 
even wants to play for them at this point. I think he's like, well, you kind of screwed me over. So, and they went with Tomas Nito over him to start the year. Right. Like when Travis Darno was on the injury list, which is what caused all this in the first place. Like he was left with the impression that one of his paths to make the team was if Travis Darno was not going to be ready. And then he was not ready. And they went with Tomas Nito over him. So I think that they seem to think that they, I, they seem to value Nito pretty highly. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really understand that, but that's, I guess it's a, a question for a different day. Um, he plays good defense. He's a good catcher. <laughs> sure. Can't, can't hit it all except for, I mean, he did hit today a little bit. <laughs> he did. And, and not he's... with, not with, not with the game on the line and the final out of the game. However, <laughs> he did hit a home run today. Yes. And, and again, you know, I'm, Stranger things have happened than Tomas Nito turning into a decent major league catcher. I'm not saying that is outside the realm of possibility. It just seems to me like the only situation, the only way the situation could have been bad with the Mets catching was if they chose to go with Nito over Mesoraco because Nito has has options. You know, you can... You can stash him in the minors and nothing happens to Nito. Literally nothing happens when you do that. Whereas when you don't put Mesoraco on the team, he doesn't he stops talking to you and retires out of spite. Like, yeah. you know, that's a that's a way worse outcome. And yeah. uh yeah. And it just and like going back to what Van Wagenen said, uh on the other hand, he says that you know, if they granted him his release, it would have set a bad precedent. On the other hand, the the player retiring out of spite sets a pretty bad precedent too because (laughs) (laughs) good luck to the Mets getting any good non-roster invites in the future if you know there's going to be this like very public airing of the laundry between these two sides um and I also think that part of the equation on the Mets part regarding like whether to bring back Mesoraco what if he would even come back is like now the Mets have to consider the fact that he hasn't played in months now. right so he has to, go to extend the spring training or go take a yeah. long assignment someplace just to and it's uh, going to take a while for him to get ready and i think that it's just like the bridge has been burned and it's not worth it to them to like wait for him to get ready and he might not even want to anyway so right. it's just it, that's over i think but you know it is what it is i think yeah. they they screwed this whole thing up in summary because we could have had kevin pulecki and then the, none of this would have been a problem or Mesoraco. Or they could <laughs> yep. have signed, you know, insert backup catcher here. Yeah. They could have signed Martin Maldonado. They could have gotten they could have gotten Ramos and Martin Maldonado. They could have done that. They sure. could have. Why they not? never would have, but they could no. have. <laughs> no. Um, so is there any other spot on the roster besides just the bullpen churn? that you think is worth discussing as to why the Mets are in the position they're in right now? Hmm. I mean, if we're going to talk about when, what happens when Lowry gets activated, I mean, I think an obvious weak spot and I, I got called out as a Todd Frazier apologist the other day, um, <laughs> just for saying, cause I had said when he came back from the injured list initially, I was shocked at the amount of, not shocked, shocked is a strong word. I was surprised at the amount of vitriol directed toward him 
just for the fact that he was going to like, they thought he was going to take at bats away from McNeil, which he hasn't really, by the way. Right. Um, but people were mad that JD Davis got benched for him and that's justifiable. I understand it. But at the same time, I was kind of, I was a little bit more on Todd Frazier's side than most perhaps because I was kind of like, we could use his third base defense because I mean, I believe that JD Davis has done everything with the bat that he could possibly do to earn himself a spot in the lineup. But he is not, he is not a major league third baseman. If you have watched him play in any capacity, his range is essentially zero. He messes up all these throws, like seemingly because he has the yips or something, although that seems to have gone away a little bit to his credit. But like watching him play third base is painful to me. And so I was welcoming the Todd Frazier defense back at third base thinking he, he'll at least hit a little bit and we're trading off something with the offense to get a little bit on defense. And at the time the Mets offense was doing, you know, fine. So I thought that that was like a fair trade off, right? But a, it turns out it's not a fair trade off because the Mets offense all slumped at the same time. And B Todd Frazier's not hitting at all. So that is the other like very glaring problem spot on the roster right now is Todd Frazier's roster spot. Um, and there are people who are very much calling for him to just be like straight up cut when Larry comes back, which I highly doubt the Mets will do. The Mets will not do that. They that absolutely would... will not do that. <laughs> that do not get be... your hopes up. No, that would be absolutely shocking. That is so against the way the Mets have operated forever now. It's, it's just it's just not going to happen. I mean, and look, I understand everything the Mets did with Frazier so far. I'm pretty much on board with. I, I think that they, they recognize that Frazier is not the future of this franchise. And so they are they're looking for options to deal with him without just, you know, eating a salary. And you got to play him in hopes he hits the shit out of the ball and you can trade him for something. You, you need to do that. So I, I totally understand why he was playing as much as he was when he first came back. And you can't give up on him because if he's not hitting and if he's not hitting now, there's no evidence he's going to be hitting off the bench either. You need right. to get him going or you need to realize that he has nothing left. But I can't see the Mets releasing him for months. Months. He's going to have to stink up the joint forever. Yep. To get released. Yep but there won't be much excuse for playing him every day when Lowry returns. There just won't. Agreed. Like, if that keeps happening, then we're going to have a problem because I sincerely worry about the alternatives because I think, I think the most logical way to handle it when Lowry returns is to bench Frazier. Um, but what I worry will happen is alternatives that suck, which is that, they could they've been giving Lowry shortstop reps in you know in the minors and that's troubling to me because that means that I think that Ahmed Rosario is in danger a little bit which is frustrating um I mean I understand his defense has not been good I get it um but and the Mets like clearly have been telling the media this about his defense yada yada Joel Sherman's writing columns <laughs> which means it's coming from the Mets um but it would be a mistake if they did that. Um, so that's one alternative. Another alternative is, although I think that that's, this is more remote of a possibility, but they've done it once before and they can do it again. Brandon Nimmo is struggling mightily, and I'm scared that he could go down for Jed Lowry's roster spot. 
these are things that these are things I'm not saying are happening, but these are things that I'm scared the Mets might do because they're the Mets is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Understood. Yeah. But what they should do is send Echeverria back down and hope he accepts the assignment. Um, Because at this point, because of his opt out, I'm like, I'm like trying to remember because of his opt out. I think he has to like accept any assignments back down now. Like they I can't just send him correct. back down. Yes. So um, I think the logical person to go would be a Denny Echeverria, but I do not think they're going to send him down actually. So it has to be something else. Now I don't know what's going to happen. If it were me, if I were the Mets, I would either send Echeverria back down, hope he accepts the assignment, but I think they're scared that he won't and that he'll go to another team. Um, which if, if it's me, I'm like, who cares? It's well, I was going to say, Echeverria. yeah, it's you literally know. a Denny Echeverria who cares, but the and, and look, care a lot. Jed Lowry is not the ideal backup shortstop. We all know this, but they have Louis Guillaume. And so yes. if, if Rosario's leg blows up in the middle of a game, Lowry is good enough to finish the game as short. So is McNeil, honestly, but they sure. don't do that. Sure. You know, I'll, I'll go crazy. Juan Lagares could probably do it for half a game. He used to be a shortstop. Exactly. You know, so there are options there. And then you bring up Guillaume if that happens. It's just, it's it's very puzzling there, Hechevria love. Yeah. I mean, he's a veteran. That's the whole explanation. And they're willing. And, and again, this is the goes back to the misallocation of resources. They you know, paid Darno's salary and they not, they um, DFA'd him after a month into the season and they're paying his whole salary. Now they're, if, if a Denny Echeverria's, uh, Echeverria's bonuses kick in, they'll be paying him like almost $5 million, which is wild um, is. to do what Luis Guillorme could do for league minimum. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I would consider if I'm the Mets is cutting Keon Broxton, but I don't think they'll do that either because they traded things for him. Yep. And that's like, that's like the Mets attitude is we traded stuff for him. So we can't possibly cut our losses with that. Um, but Keon Broxton just seems entirely redundant with Juan Lagares. He's not hitting. I mean, he's one of many Mets that aren't hitting. Let's be real. It's right. not Keon Broxton's fault that the entire offense is slumping, but you know, as a as a role player off the bench, he, if he doesn't hit at all, what does he provide you that Juan Ligaris doesn't do better? Almost nothing. Like, he's speedier than Juan Ligaris a little bit. Like, I would say he's, like, slightly more of a stolen base threat than Juan yes. Ligaris, I guess, is, like, the only thing he does better. But is that worth rostering a dude who's hitting 150, who's, well, like, almost entirely redundant with Juan Ligaris, who's not hitting much better? You know meme of guy pointing to his his forehead you have to get on base to steal a base yeah like you know he he's just not getting on base he's essentially the pinch runner at this point like that and the late inning defensive replacement that's like his whole job and i just don't know if that's enough to warrant a roster spot when like i'm just worried that the mets like will do something dumb like it's not worth rostering Keon Broxton and sending down Ahmed Rosario or Brandon Nimmo or J.D. Davis. Like, these are better baseball players. Yeah. See, I think J.D. Davis is going to be the guy that's going to be sent down, which... That worries me, too. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but he has options, so it's not... You're not... I don't look at J.D. Davis as an everyday player on this team going forward. 
And I don't know if anybody else in the Mets front office sees him that way either. So if you're talking about a role player, a role player with options is infinitely more useful than a role player without options. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I just don't know. Keon Broxton is a role player without options. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I would I would shit can him before I did so for anybody else. Um I also think that there's an outside shot that the Mets um like really really bungle this thing more than we even thought possible. <laughs> there's always that possibility. And and send McNeil down. I know that oh sounds my God. crazy. I don't think Oh my god, I don't think they'll do that. But they could, I hope I not. I just I I have this fear that they just that they're going to send him down to learn something. Like, you know, learn to play left field better. Yes, whatever. exactly. I don't, I don't I don't think they'll do that cuz I think that they see McNeil as like the everyday left fielder at this point. I think I really hope so. The encouraging thing on that front I think is that Todd Frazier, like I mentioned earlier, didn't cut into McNeil's playing time like at all. Like people were really worried about that. Like, oh, the Mets hate McNeil, which I mean, I totally understand where their worries are coming from. Like, I'm not saying these were baseless concerns um, because they weren't, but they were like, people were like, oh, he's going to cut into McNeil's playing time. And he really didn't. And I think that that's a good sign. (laughs) I think that that means that the Mets like actually think McNeil is good, maybe, which (laughs) is correct. It is absolutely um, correct. I hope I hope yeah. you're right. I just have this fear that they don't like the Mets have been very I mean when you think about it, the Mets have been very poor developing position players. Yes. Over their last oh entire existence. Yeah. So Conforto's basically like the one like position player they've developed. I mean Nimmo, like but Nimmo's having a struggle right now, but like it's basically been Conforto. Right. Um and it just seems to me like this roster was constructed with with one perceived um, sort of uh, – I don't want the word manifesto, but the word manifesto keeps popping in my head. Like they kept talking about the, that it was going to be depth, right? This was going to be a roster that was, was going to be very deep and very versatile and – I think yeah, that, that was their mantra all off. mantra. That's better than manifesto mantra. mantra. Um, but I feel like one of the things that I was getting frustrated with when people were saying that the roster construction wasn't as big of a deal as it was because like, Hey, it's never a bad thing to have too many good players, which is totally true. And I, I value that, but you have to realize that if you have a terrible manager, it is a problem to have too many good players because that because manager won't manage their playing time properly. Exactly. And that is my big fear still is that when Lowry comes back, there's just going to be this, this veteran sheen put on the team and just say, you know, we need to go with experience. We're a young team. We need experience. Damn it. And that's going to mean that Frazier starts every day. It means that, um, you know they're never gonna go out and really invest fully in uh, in the younger players. Like to me, what this season has taught me, and I recognize the season is young, and whatever. What this season has taught me is that the Mets had more in their coffers to begin this off season than they realized, 
and that they probably could have gotten away with one or two less moves and had the exact same win-loss record today. Yeah, it's possible. Or they could have had a better one if they had, you know, made those moves on the pitching side instead of right. the position player side. Exactly. You know? You know, it's just um, it seems to me like this is a Mets team that in a really good manager's hands would be so much fun to watch because they, there is a lot of flexibility because of guys like McNeil, because of guys like Lowry. You could have four or five players who don't have a, a, an assigned position every single day, but are floating all over the, the field. And there are, there are pros and cons to that, but I understand why the Mets wanted that. I understand why that was an appealing way to construct their team. But I think there's a major flaw in that when Mickey Calloway is your manager. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And like, it's just like, there are simple ways that they could, that they could give these guys the at-bats they need. Like, when's the last time, besides when he was hit in the hand, and needed time off because he was hit in the hand. When's the last time Cano had like a day off? Just like a day off. Right. Like they play him every single day and he's 36 years old and he's going to be on the team for the next five years. Like give him more days off. <laughs> like it, it, if you're going to roster all these old dudes, give them more days off. Rotate McNeil around the infield. Give JD Davis reps in the outfield when McNeil's in the infield. Like, actually just play McNeil at third base where he is clearly defensively superior to J.D. Davis and put J.D. Davis in the outfield. But instead they do the reverse and it's infuriating. Yeah. Like, like these are simple things. And, you know, the Mets can't Mets can't manage a roster that has all these moving parts. They just can't. They need dudes with roles, (laughs) which is why it's like Edwin Diaz can only pitch in these situations. And then like the game is like happening and they're like, shit, just kidding. We're going to (laughs) bring we're going to bring Edwin Diaz in the game now. And it's like, oh, my God. Well, and that's why I fear for McNeil, because I, I, I just feel like this isn't the this isn't the the roster that Callaway can manage. Yeah. I, yeah. And going back to the beginning of the show, when we talked about, you know, how much longer are the Mets going to play like this? You know, if they drop out of contention relatively early, uh, Callaway's job is in serious jeopardy, in my view, if they continue to play this bad. Um, we uh, we I actually think... just got a tweet about that. Did which, we? Which we will answer right after this break. And we are back. So we put out the call on Twitter for folks to give us uh, a question and uh friend who's uh who's not his handle but his display name on Twitter is uh Will Pond's Fear Thanos. Um, <laughs> nice. NYJet76forlife on twitter.com said expectations of Riggleman when he eventually takes over as manager. <laughs> oh man. Let I me let me be the first to say uh Rim Jiggleman Rim Jiggleman. Let's start there. Uh, yeah. No, you know, I I don't know what Jim Riggleman's going to do. I, I don't think Jim... Idea. What? I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I don't think... God, if Jim Riggleman was a managerial savant, he wouldn't be the bench coach for the 2019 Mets. Correct. He would have a job someplace else. Yeah. It, it's, he is not a young wunderkind who is just coming up the ranks and so is cutting his teeth as someone's bench coach. He's a guy who's flamed out before 
and was brought in to hopefully be a steady hand on Mickey Calloway's shoulder. That has proven to be false. <laughs> yeah, like what? what is he even doing? Like, Mickey Calloway clearly hasn't improved. Like, I was... I was very much giving Mickey Calloway so much benefit of the doubt last year when people were really mad at him. <laughs> Deservedly so most of the time because he was frustrating last year. And like he did things like batting the Mets out of order and like <laughs> basic stuff, like not understanding how a double switch works. And I was like, you know what, guys, he's an American League guy. He's never managed before this first year. He'll learn. We got Rim Jiggleman in here. He can provide like National League strategy. <laughs> knowledge nothing has changed and so like what is he even doing that doesn't exactly inspire confidence in me for if he takes over like is it gonna be any different i i don't think so i mean i think he might have like more fundamental knowledge of like how a double switch works and like maybe he'll like now mickey cowboy has gone from not double switching at all to double switching like literally all the time um i think that maybe he'll be a more happy medium in that regard but like expecting like anything wildly different is eh, no yeah that's um <sighs> i agree first of all riggleman was supposed to like you said be the national league voice and i suppose that callaway hasn't done anything this season that's super embarrassing from a managerial standpoint Except when he had his like first ten days of the season where he was double switching everybody for no reason, just yeah. like, hey, see, I do know how this works. This is my shiny new toy. Look at it. I'm gonna use it all the time. Yeah, uh, and and then you know he's done the thing that I think a lot of managers fall into, which I understand the desire to do this, but like you know. For instance, this happened, I believe, on opening day when I was at the game. Forgive me if it was not that game, but where Dom Smith was announced into the game as a pinch hitter, but then the opposing manager pulled out his pitcher, brought in a lefty, and so he burned Smith's spot to bring up J.D. Davis. Oh, like, yeah, like he just like burned him as a pinch hitter, yes. and he never even did the pinch hitting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And those I, things... I don't remember if it was opening day either, but I remember that happening. Yeah, and that happened a few times, you know. But those are those are things that even good managers do every now and then. That's a thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. um But it just seems to me like Callaway doesn't he doesn't understand the fundamentals of managing a bullpen over the course of a season, which blows my mind because the dude was a fucking pitching coach. I know. That stuff. Like, stuff like using Luis Apillon as a multi-inning reliever instead of a left-handed specialist, and then he has an injury. Shocking. Like, it's like, come on. Like, really? Like, what? Why are you like this? It just seems to me like Callaway got the job because he interviewed very well and that you, you, you have to give your first-year manager the benefit of the doubt. And the Mets didn't play all that terribly for Callaway reasons last year. Like most yeah. of the Mets' problems last year were not Callaway problems. Right. I mean, like he did, like he made terrible decisions, but even if he had pushed all the right buttons, that wasn't going to fix the problem. Exactly. And so I think that you look at that and you say, all right, well, we're going to get him some help this year and we're going to improve the elements of the team he struggled with. We're going to try and improve the bullpen. 
We're going to try and improve the bench. We're going to give him more depth so that he has more options for constructing his lineup every day and for figuring out who's going to play where on the field. And they gave him a fair amount of new toys to play with. Whether they were the right toys or not, I am not. That's a different conversation for a different day. But I don't think that with all of the improvements the Mets gave Callaway, I don't think he's improved at all. No, no. He's pretty much doing the same stuff he did. <laughs> he's He looks the same, basically. He does, which is very, very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we said this we said this same thing about Terry Collins towards the end. Like, and I, I guess I'll say it again. At least his players seem to play for him. That's like the one thing I'll give him, which is like what I said about Terry Collins, too. Like the players seem to like him, at least. I don't know. Like, sure. you know, it's because I we have also seen situations and, you know, I'll, I'll like stare over a few miles away down the beltway at D.C. <laughs> um, where the manager just like clearly loses the clubhouse completely. Mm hmm. And those situations are yikes. And I will say that at least it doesn't seem like that has come to pass. Um, because those are like the real, like that's when you like have to fire the manager, basically when he loses the clubhouse, when the players like aren't interested in anything he has to say. Um, Cause that's when you have an issue. And I think that at least Callaway doesn't seem to have that problem. Right. So I'll give him credit for that. So I, I I believe I asked this question at the ARG and not on a podcast, but forgive me, listeners, if I already asked this question on the podcast. When was the last time, Allison, you felt as a Mets fan confident in your manager? Wow. Oh, my God. It's been ages. Like, like has it been ever? Like, I'm trying to think, <laughs> like, it's, that's so sad, but, like, oh, my God. Like, maybe early Willie Randolph? Oh, I, I never felt the way about Willie Randolph. I don't know. Like, like I can't, because, like, I mean, I was, I'm old enough to remember the, like, Bobby Valentine teams, mm -hmm. but, like, I'm not, I wasn't old enough that I, like, understood managing back then. You sure, know, like, sure. you know. So, like, I was, like, a kid. So, like, I'm not paying attention to, like, how the manager is affecting the game. I'm just watching the games for, like, right. the players and the Yay Mets. And, like, I remember, like, those teams. But I don't remember, like, Bobby Valentine's managerial style. So, like, I can't say that about him because I don't remember. See, Bobby like, Valentine is the manager that I instinctively wanted to say. Like, okay, I, I was confident in the Mets under Valentine. But Valentine was, like, no one ever doubted how smart Valentine was. Right. Everybody doubted that, or everybody was worried that sometimes he was too smart for his own good, that he would try and do something because it was because it seemed unconventional, because it seemed like it would maybe spark something. But you know, he made a lot of moves where, looking back, you think like, well, if he just played it more by the book, that would have gone more the Mets' way, you know. And I, I'm an analytical guy when it comes to baseball, so I, I like it when a manager is trying to do something that's a little bit outside their own possibility, that's trying to rely on some understanding of the game that isn't apparent from just watching the game. Like, there's a reason why I'm not a manager, and those guys are. I want those guys to manage. I want them to act like managers. That is, that's a good thing in my book. Um, right. But since since Bobby Valentine... 
I don't think there's been anybody that we could look at as saying like, oh, that guy is is doing something differently. He's, right. He's, no. he's pushing different buttons than the average manager. He's thinking outside the box. All those cliches that don't really mean anything. But, I mean, we've just had like the most traditional, boring managers for as long as for, – for, for, said Valentine got fired and I was in college. So all of my adult post-college life – has been managed by just the most boring dudes possible from and like, Art Howe on down. And there's a reason why the Mets have, like, the Mets compared to other franchises have never had managers that have had long tenures. Because, like, there there are other franchises, like, I look around at other franchises and I'm like, hmm, I wonder what it's like to have a manager that's on that manages your team for, like, a decade. Like, I've never, like, I've never experienced that as a Mets fan. Not once. I've been yeah. a Mets fan my whole life. I have never, there's never been a manager that's been the manager for longer. Like, who's the longest tenured manager of my life? Is it, is it Terry Collins? It might be. What year were you born? Not not, not to put you on blast on the podcast. If you don't want to say that, you don't have to. <laughs> 1990. Okay, so uh, David Johnson might have been there at the very beginning of your life. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So he would have been it. But like, I don't think that counts because like he was only manager for like a couple of years of my life. Right. I, I think he was fired in 90. I think Bud Harrelson took over in 1990. That is th- admittedly, I was 10 in 1990. So I, you know, I, I do not have the greatest memory of that, of the managerial changes for that team, you know. Um, but let's uh, but let's think about it past that. I mean, Bobby Valentine came on board. In ninety seven, I want to say that sounds about right. And was there until end of 02? something like that. So that's five years, five six years maybe. Um, I'm pulling up the internet. Yeah, so Willie Randolph can, was like, there from oh five to oh nine, I think, and then Jerry Manuel took over. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So yeah, Bobby Valentine was 1996 to 02. Okay, 06, 96 to 02, all right. And then Art Howe was 03 to 04. Mm-hmm. And then we had Willie Randolph 05 to 08. And then Jerry Manuel 08 to 10. And then Terry Collins 2011-2017. So that's, yeah, it's Terry Collins. <laughs> Literally, it's Terry Collins. Wow. Like in my lifetime, the most tenured Mets manager. And I think he's like the, he's like the second most tenured Mets manager like ever. I want to say it's Davey Johnson than him. Yeah. Which is wild. <laughs> like, like there are other franchises who have managers that are their manager for like a quarter century. Yes. And the Mets have just never had anything like that. This is a different sport entirely, but the Pittsburgh Steelers have had something like seven head coaches. Ever. Ever. In their whole yes. history. How, like, I, forgive me, I am, like, terribly ignorant when it comes to the NFL. How, like, old of a franchise are the Pittsburgh Steelers? Uh, I'm looking that up right now. They were, uh, they played their first season in 1933. <laughs> but <laughs> They've only had seven. And I, I, I am wrong about that. But it, it, it's it's something like they've had seven head coaches since the 60s. Oh, okay. Hang on. But that's still that's still not a lot. Coaches. Okay, so they have had... Because the Mets have had 21 managers in their history, and the Mets have been a team since 1962. Yeah, exactly. And that's insane. I mean... It's insane. The... <laughs> 
Okay, so the Steelers have had 16 head coaches since 1933. 16! Yep. yep. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah, I just, like, so, like, going back to the original question, like, when was the last time I felt confident in a Mets manager? Like, I'm not sure I ever have. Like, there have been, okay, so there have been times where I've had, like, fleeting confidence, I guess, sure, is, sure. is what you could describe it as. And I would say, like, during parts of Willie Randolph's tenure, I had fleeting confidence. Like, you, you know, the 06 team obviously was a great baseball team, and but that's, like, a managerial, like, foolproof team. Like, yes. you, you, like, if you just put, like, young David Wright, young Jose Reyes, Carlos Beltran, and Carlos Delgado on the same goddamn team, like, of course that team's going to win games. Like, I and just, you're forgetting like, Pedro Martinez, Pedro. Tom Glavin. Yeah, like, know. the team, like, when you have the amount of talent on the field that that team had, like, you're going to win games even if you have, like, a three-by-five wooden plank managing that team. Yep. Like, it's it's literally the easiest job. You just, like, sit there and let the team win games. Um. So, like, I don't know. Like, that doesn't count as managerial acumen to me. And, like, I just don't think, like, I've always been a person that feels that the manager, like, doesn't have actually that much of an impact on how good the team is in the end. Like, it really doesn't. And so, like, I've had fleeting confidence, I would say, in Willie Randolph and fleeting confidence at time and Terry, at, at times with Terry Collins. But that's, like, it. I there's There's never a time in my lifetime where I can say I felt, like, 100% confident in the Mets manager for any extended period of time beyond like, I don't even know, like a month or something. I don't know, like ever in my life, because like I never felt confident in Jerry Manuel. Lord, good Lord. <laughs> never. I never felt confident in Mickey Calloway. Um, I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt the first year, like I said, because he was new, but I never felt confident in him that first year because he was doing poorly and he doesn't seem to have learned from it. So I don't feel confident in him now. Uh, I mean, like Art Howe was just like extremely boring in every yep. respect. And his baseball teams were so bad that there was like nothing he could have done to make those teams. Okay. So like, I don't know. Um, like that confidence wasn't there. And like, I don't like Bobby Valentine. Like I probably would have felt confidence in him at points if I was like old enough to care about that. Right. Like, yeah. like I said, cause like, so in 1996, I was six and he ended his tenure in 2002 when I was 12. So that was like the early stages of my Mets fandom when you're like a kid and you don't like even really know who the manager is, <laughs> let alone really exactly. care about that. So, you know, the sad answer to that is never really. Well, let's try and, and, and begin to wrap up on a more positive note here. So like we said at the start of this episode, the Mets are under 500, but not terribly so has there been one thing this year that you have been pleasantly surprised by and you can't say alonso or mcneil damn it because everybody's impressed by those guys um okay um i'll go with my favorite underrated dude um i've talked about this i talked about this i think i'm trying to remember is episode one or episode two of a pot of their own it was like early on we just like picked our dude who we thought was like key to the success of the mets sure um like like an oh like a low-key guy not like I pick like Thor. I think that Michael Conforto is <laughs> yeah. key, you know, like it's going to be like a, a dude that's like low key, like um, key to the, the success of the team. And I picked uh, Seth Lugo and I think that remains true. And Seth Lugo has remained a rock in that bullpen. And I think like he he's probably the guy who's been I wouldn't call it a pleasant surprise because I'm not really surprised by it. 
but he's been the guy besides, you know, the obvious answers of like Alonso and McNeil that has been, you know, a good thing to watch about the Mets early on this year. Yeah. He's who I would pick. Yeah. And, you know, he had that sort of rough patch in there that we then found out because he had the fucking flu. And you I called know. him Seth Flugo for like three weeks. <laughs> I think it's caught on. I think he like the Amazing Avenue Slack just calls him Seth Flugo all the time now. But I'll have everyone know that that was my nickname. Good job, I'm... good job, Allison. We're <laughs> all proud Flugo. of you for that. Hashtag Seth Flugo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm totally on board with that nickname. Um, you know what I'll say is that I think that the last. 10 days or so notwithstanding. I think we now actually let me rephrase that. I think that the last 10 days have been what a lot of us feared the offense would be like this year. Yeah. But the early on, yeah, you know, the first 20 days of the season or so, we saw that this team could hit. And yeah. we saw that there is a path forward where the team is offensively strong, maybe not a powerhouse, but strong. You know, um, and I think with Lowry coming back, the Mets have a chance to really have one of the better lineups in the National League East. That has been helped remarkably by Bryce Harper being merely okay for the Phillies. Right. Um, But I think that you can, especially if McNeil is going to play left field every day, if McNeil is going to play left field every day and you have an infield of Alonso. Cano, Rosario, McNeil, I mean, Rosario, Lowry, with Ramos behind the plate, and McNeil, Nimmo, and Conforto in the outfield. Aside from Rosario, there is really not an easy out in that lineup. Yeah. And I Rosario mean, is, is better than he was last year. Yeah, he's improved on the offensive side. I mean, I know his defense has left a lot to be desired both last year and this year for like different reasons, kind of like last year. He just like, you know, didn't have the good defensive metrics and kind of looked, you know, shaky. But this year he's kind of like missing routine plays all of a sudden and looks like he's like almost taking a step backward, which is, you know, concerning. But it's clear that he's working really hard on it. Like they've shown tons of footage of him working with DeSarcino like every day. And I think that he's like breaking out of that, like, you know, defensive slump, if you want to call it that a Mm -hmm. little bit. Yeah. Um, But he has looked actually really good at the plate. Like, good enough that if his defensive skills get to where they should be, that is a three-war player right there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. League average bat with above average defense, that's a three-war player. That's basically, you know, uh, slightly better with the bat, slightly worse in the field than Juan Ligaris at his peak defensive ability. Right, exactly. You know, that is a three-war player, and that is something that I think – Rosario can still get to. I, I maybe I'm like too, you know, irrationally optimistic about Rosario. Maybe you know, maybe because if you listen to Mets Twitter, like, <laughs> which you should never listen to Mets Twitter, by the way. Kids, never. Don't listen to Mets Twitter. Never. But if you listen to certain sects of Mets Twitter, uh, you know, like Rosario is like a bust already, like completely a bust, like forever and ever. And I just don't believe that. Like, I think that he still has three war player potential. And I think that even this year, if he figures his shit out, like he could become a two and a half war player if he keeps doing like, you know, a 110 WRC plus, which he's like been doing for 
like three weeks now. Right. So, you know, like, he's not an easy out. I think that actually, like, like, I mean, there are dudes that have been in various slumps, like Nimmo's been in a slump, Cano's been in slumps at times, but I, the dude that I'm most concerned about offensively is actually Wilson Ramos right now. Well, he's, he's, not, not, he's not, he's not elevating the ball at all. No, he looks bad. Um, I'm concerned about that. I mean, he could, like, he has, I mean, he has certainly the tools and the, you know, reputation to figure it out. Um, and I don't think it's like, you know, a predestined thing that he's going to look like this forever. Um, sure. but it's, it's concerning. Um, but that lineup that you put out there that you just said is a good offensive lineup in theory. It's and what very I, good. what I like about the lineup going forward, like, you know, for the rest of the season is that to me, that's a lineup that if somebody or even two somebodies are slumping, it doesn't derail the entire lineup. Sure. Right. And that's, that's where my optimism comes in. Cause I think you're, you're starting to see that DeGrom and Syndergaard are coming around a little bit. Yeah. You know, Syndergaard, at least DeGrom for at sure. At least DeGrom. Yeah. Syndergaard had that great start last week and then a not so great start yesterday. Yeah. But so we're kind of jury's still out on him. Yes. I wrote I wrote an article about how it might be the baseballs guys, yes, which you did. I mean, you know, that's not exactly an encouraging thing to say, unfortunately. And I didn't mean it as like a downer article at all. I was just trying to find answers basically. Right. Right. Um because if it's the baseballs, it's kind of not something that can be solved <laughs> by, you know, like Dave Island tweaking with his mechanics or whatever, exactly, like yeah. pitch sequencing yeah. or whatever other but issues in, you might you have. Know, but Mats yeah. has looked good yeah. this season. I think Wheeler has looked more or less good this season. Yeah, Wheeler's looked like I mean he hasn't looked like second half last year Zach Wheeler. Obviously, that was like you know. But he also doesn't look like in a first. Bottle. He also doesn't look like first half Zach Wheeler last year either. Yeah, he looks very much like just Zach Wheeler, like yeah. like kind of the Zach like the Zach Wheeler norm almost that you would expect. Basically, yes, and so to to me there are just. They're a fifth starter away from having a team that I can squint and see the playoffs for. Yeah. I just don't think the fifth starter is out there. It is. But they're well, just unwilling to. Not out there for the Mets. Although I, I will say that we are getting to the point of no return with Dallas Keuchel. Because yeah. he's going to need at least a month to get ready. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Craig I think Kimbrough's still out there, too. He could be helpful. He's not a fifth <laughs> starter. But, you know, what he is, is he's another solid relief option for a beleaguered bullpen who is all who has already cycled through. Let's see. Chris Flexen, Drew Gagnon, Paul Seawald, Daniel Zamora, Tyler Bachelor, Tim Peterson, like every single dude from last year has already been up and down and up and down. Like every single one we need, like Craig Kimbrell could be really useful right about now. <sighs> so, so you're not, a, you're, you're not a font believer. I mean, I'm, like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No one's a font. believer. Fine. He's fine. <laughs> like He's fine. It's better than doing nothing. I suppose. Yes. He is sure. useful churn. And I guess like, you know, the performance he put forth today, although like they didn't push him like that deep because he wasn't really all that stretched out, I suppose. Um, is I like he's already shown me more than Chris Flexen and Corey Oswalt. So if yeah. that's what it, if that's what it takes to be a font believer, then I suppose I am one actually. Because <laughs> I I think that he's a reasonable sixth or seventh starter on the depth chart. 
Sure. The problem is, is that if I recall correctly, they've locked themselves into a Broxton situation now because I believe Font does not have options. That might be correct. Yes. So that's like, that's an issue that goes back to like the roster construction problems is like the reason why Oswalt and Flexen have had utility, despite the fact that the performance has not been there is that they can cycle them in and out of the rotation whenever they please, because they can send them back down because they have options. Font is here. I mean, he, when Vargas returns and I can't believe I'm saying that, like, you know, hoping for Vargas to return. <laughs> Lord knows. I didn't think that those are words I would say. Um, but when Vargas returns, I think that Font will just be pushed into the bullpen. Like he's not going to be sent down because I don't think he has options. Right. What he's I would do bullpen guy instead. What I would do, which they're not going to do, is I would have Font as uh, Vargas's caddy. Yeah. Like basically save him for days when Vargas pitches and yes. like pitch Vargas for four innings and then like font for four innings. Yes. And I would I would yeah. let him pitch like an inning or two in between there. You know, on his throw days, let his yeah. throw days be bullpen days. Yeah. I think that that would be like the best usage of him. Of course, I trust the Mets zero percent to do that. Yeah. But yes, and, and I, I understand agree. why like roster wise, that's not always the easiest thing to do. But right. That would save this bullpen a whole lot. Because the problem is right now is that they've essentially made Seth Lugo that guy. And it's and it's an issue because Seth Lugo is like your second best relief pitcher right now. Yes, because exactly. Familia is on the IL. I mean, Justin Wilson just came off the IL. But like Edwin Diaz is your best relief pitcher. And then like Seth Lugo is literally your second best relief pitcher. And you're like kind of burning him for the middle innings of a Jason Vargas start right now. Which they have to do when those starts are close still. Because Vargas has actually been, you know, okay. Right. He's given you, like, Jason Vargas version of quality starts, which is, like, four innings, one run, or whatever. Right. Which is why you don't want to waste Lugo in those starts. Because there are days when... Uh, to, to me, if you're going to have Lugo in the bullpen, then you need to save Lugo for the situations that are really dire. Yeah, well, not, he not needs dire. to pitch in high leverage, the high leverage situations. Ones. High leverage situations, yeah, exactly. And the fifth inning of a Vargas start is not a high leverage situation. No, he he needs to, and that's why Font being like a piggyback guy would be helpful. Because like, if you get four innings out of Vargas or whatever, and you get three innings out of Font, then you're in the seventh inning. Say you're up, you know, you're up two to one or something in the seventh inning. Then Seth Lugo pitches like two innings, like your last two innings. Like if Edwin Diaz has been used the day before. For another reason, then you then you can use Seth Lugo for the the like eighth and ninth inning. That's like that's the way Seth Lugo should be used exactly. as like a, a high leverage reliever for like the final two innings of a close game. Or he comes in to get like he comes in as like a fireman in like the seventh and then also pitches the eighth. Yep, that's like how Seth Lugo should be used, which they have used him like that at times this year. It's just that like they can't use him optimally in that situation all the time because they have to, because the starters haven't gone deep into games and that's not just Vargas. That's been a problem for all of them. Although like we going back to DeGrom and Syndergaard figuring their stuff out, that'll help a lot in that regard because at least hopefully they'll routinely give us like seven innings plus like we're used to from them. It will. Well, I I do think we've laid out a couple of reasons for optimism. So, That's a good place to begin to wrap things up. So, Allison, Chris, and I have been doing music recommendations 
on the pod. So as our guest, why don't you give us a music recommendation? Okay. So I kind of have two like very different ones. Okay. Now I told you when you were like, we do music recommendations. I was like, Oh God, this is gonna be so embarrassing because like, I am not nearly as much of a music buff as I know that you and Chris are. I know that you and Chris go to like a ton of concerts every year. I am like not as cool as you guys. I don't go like, I go to concerts, but like not nearly as often. Um, you are overstating. So I, give... I won't speak for Chris because Chris is pretty cool. Chris, Chris <laughs> is in a couple of bands that are like active and whatever. I am not cool, but go ahead. Um, but, um, I'll do my, like, I'll do my, like, kind of, like, serious one, and then I have, like, a silly one that sure. kind of, like, links into this week's, um, A Pot of Their Own episode, too. Kind of, like, a crossover thing. Ooh. Um, so my, like, somewhat serious one is that, um, this, I, when it comes to my music taste, for those of you who don't know, which is probably most of you, I am very much, like, the bands that people my age listened to in high school. So I am... I like what you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I was born in 1990. So I'm a child of the nineties. So like my favorite bands are like green day and Nirvana and like all of that nineties rock and like all of like, like basically nineties and modern day alternative is like my jam. So a band that brings back a lot of nostalgic high school memories for me when I went through my like weird, you know, like emo phase that a lot of kids went through in like the er the early to mid thousands when they were in high school, if they were 90s kids, um, was Panic at the Disco. Okay. Um, if you are familiar with that band. Sure, sure. Um, their very first album was like, you know, insanely popular. Um and then they kind of fell off the face of the earth for many years. They kept making music, but their intervening albums were pretty bad, honestly, to be quite frank. And this is a band I enjoy and have seen in concert multiple times. Um, they basically produced one hit between like that very first album, which produced a bunch of hits. And now they basically produced one hit. Um, and their most recent two albums are actually awesome. <laughs> I love both of them. So the, the, um, most recent, the second most recent, so like the pen ultimate, I guess you would say mm -hmm. album of theirs is called death of a bachelor. And that album is fantastic. Um, and their newest album is also fantastic. And I recently saw them in concert over the summer. So panic at the disco's recent two albums, their most recent stuff. I recommend it. I it'll bring you back to those like high school memories if you're inclined to that type of music. It'll bring you right back to it. And they and it's not like it's an exact replica either. Like I think that they've evolved in their taste. Like Brandon Yuri has evolved in his like style over time. Um, but it's still like very good music, at least to me. Um, so that's my one. My other one that's kind of a silly thing. Linda Serovich and I on um, at the end of a pot of their own this week, we talked about Prince of Egypt, the um, the, the Disney. Um, uh... Animated film? Yeah, the DreamWorks animated film. I'm this sorry, is another DreamWorks. 90s thing. Um, came out in 1998, I believe. Um, that was like our walk-off win for that week. Uh, on a pot of their own, we do walk-off wins every week where we talk about what made us happy that week. Um, and, I, and Linda and I talked about Prince of Egypt. Um, and that soundtrack is like the most underrated movie soundtrack of all time, in my opinion. It's so good. <laughs> So if you are like a like a lover of like animated films of Disney, although this is this is DreamWorks, not Disney. Um, but if you are a lover of that sort of of those sorts of things and if the 90s are nostalgic to you in that regard, this cast is an all star cast and the album is fantastic. So if you like love, love movie soundtracks, 
Prince of Egypt, if you've never listened to it. Highly recommend. I will go out on a limb here and say that nobody thought the Prince of Egypt soundtrack was going to get two podcast shout outs this week on Woo! Amazing Avenue Audio. So yes. there we go. Uh, so I had a different uh, album that I was going to, to highlight for this week. But then something was uh, so an album came out, I guess it was about two weeks ago, and I had listened to it once and enjoyed it, but I listened to it like at work. I wasn't looking at the song titles, and the, the the lyrics didn't really betray the title of this song. But when I saw the title of this song, I thought, "Oh God, this has to be my music wreck." And it's a it's a a tip of the hat to our former host Jeffrey Paternostro. The Mountain Goats released a new album two weeks ago, and that is Jeff's favorite band. It is called um, "In League with Dragons." And there is a song on this album called, drumroll please, Doc Gooden. Hell yeah. And it's it's not about his tenure as a Met. It's actually about his tenure as a Yankee. There's sort of a, a theme of the record about sort of old wizards and like people who are thought to be washed up doing good things. And it's about a good start he had in Seattle. But it, you would never know that if you weren't really scrutinizing the lyrics. But it's a great song, and it's a right. really good Mountain Goats album. Uh, That's it, awesome. So yeah, I, I felt like there between Jeff Jeff's love for the Mountain Goats and the song called Doc Gooden, there was no way that couldn't be the music recommendation for this week. That reminds me of um, the other, the only other um, Mets song that I think I know. That isn't like you know a song that was like a jingle for the team. Sure, or whatever. it doesn't meet the um, Mets. Yeah, Mike Piazza, New York catcher. Piazza, New York catcher by Bell and Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's like that's like my Mets song that I have on my uh, on my music library that like I go back to every once in a while. You, Piazza, New York catcher. like many others, might have been exposed to that song through the Juno soundtrack. Yes, correct. That's yeah. correct. So yeah. another movie recommendation besides Prince of Egypt, <laughs> Juno, and that yeah. soundtrack is also great. I was working in college radio when that Bell and Sebastian record came out, and I remember like looking at the track listing and just being like, no way. Yeah, right? <laughs> All of my interests are coming together. So I know, I know. And yes. like, yeah, and Juno's a movie that's really close to my heart. It's like a, a favorite film of mine. So, and the soundtrack is phenomenal. And that that is indeed how I came to that song. And I was like, this makes me love it even more now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. There are definitely other Mets, other songs that that reference the Mets, but that might be that might be the best one. Uh, those those two songs that might be the best ones. There's a band that. Um, Everybody should check out called the Baseball Project. It's uh, members of REM and other bands, and they just write songs about baseball. Wait, really? How did yes. I not know about yeah, this? That's I, so cool. I've seen the Baseball Project live a few times, and they're super fun. But they have a song called "From Nails to Thumbtacks" that's mm. about um, our pal Lenny, Lenny Dykstra, <laughs> <laughs> Lenny Dykstra, and uh, it's it's really good. But they there are other songs that sort of reference Mets, but there, there's not a lot of like. Met-centric baseball project songs yet, maybe on their next album. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's I guess a second music wreck, the baseball project. I, I really, pref- I think I prefer their their first album over everything else. But the L- Lenny Dykstra song is on their album called Third, which is unsurprisingly their third album. <laughs> um, so anyway, thank you for listening. Please 
please be checking out all the Amazing Avenue audio shows. I'm really proud of what we've been able to do so far with these shows. I think they've been super fun and all really different. And, uh, yeah, it makes me feel really good where every week I think, like, oh, wow, me and Chris got to step it up because everyone else is killing it. So that's that's a good feeling to have. The, the competition, the friendly competition is really nice. Uh, I feel like we're going to be... We're going to be having those kind of conversations all year because everybody's just doing such a great job. So please Still listen the to the podcast those. game. Everyone's killing it. Yeah, we're I'm doing so proud. I'm really proud, too. Um, and uh, you can follow Allison on Twitter at Petite PhD. I am at Brian needs a nap. Go to AmazingAvenue.com for more of our Mets related nonsense. Follow Amazing Avenue on twi- Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Email us. We've been waiting for some emails. AA audio podcast at gmail.com. We want to answer your podcast related, I mean, your baseball related questions on the podcast or your music related questions. Or, you know, I can share some recipes or something. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a boring suburban dad. Whatever you ask me, I will, I will figure out a way to talk about. Um, and so until next time, let's go Mets and thank you, Allison. Of course.